Magic Camp. This isn't a podcast. It's a family. <laughs> um, this is a family. This we, is a family. And we drive in. <laughs> We're driving cars. We are driving. I love driving. I can't help but morph into Jean-Claude Van- No, that's not Jean-Claude Van Damme. Who's the... Into Arnold Schwarzenegger. No. From... Sly. Sly, right. Yeah, he he has that sort of voice. He, he's... Yes. Like, deranged, trying to be so deep. It's it, but it's so non-distinct at the same time. Like it's, I was trying to. That's what I mean. It's picture like, an impression. It's, just, it's like there's nothing. There's really nothing to latch onto. There's no yeah. defining features. If you hadn't guessed, we're talking about, of course, um, Vin Diesel, uh, just coming coming hot off of the, um, you know, of a, a viewing of Fast Nine, Fast and Furious Nine. People are saying this is the Fast Renaissance. It's the fastest of them all. Um, <laughs> we'll say that, and also. Uh, it's true. This this podcast that you're listening to right now, Magic Camp, is not just a podcast. It's it is family. Um, I think it's worth noting that uh, or pointing out that you and I are brothers. People don't know that we're brothers. They could be forgiven for not knowing we're brothers, and you're in my heart. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. That's actually you nailed it. Um, so we saw Fast Nine last night. Um, kind of against our will, more for fun than anything, to be in the movie theater for the first time in 16 months. I never stopped. Um, Sorry, you never stopped what? dog is drinking in the background. Don't, don't worry about that. I never stopped going to the movie theater. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't, I didn't know this. Just kidding. Uh, I, I had gone, though, a couple times before with my kids. Right. It was my first time back. Um, first time seeing a Fast and Furious movie in... Four years? I think I saw a Fast 6, maybe. It's the first time I've seen a Fast and the Furious movie, um, like, not while waking up in the middle of the night <laughs> in a slumber party and it's playing on the TV. Yeah, it is It is a very, um, definitely of that era, of the sticky couch, hot hot, hot couch era. Yeah. Um, and those movies, actually, I think if we were to go back, I've said this before, if we were to go back and watch the first two, would blow this movie away in terms of the special effects, like the practical special effects that would have been used in the earlier movies, like people actually driving, people actually... There would have been no cause for CGI in the original Fast and Furious movies. But this movie is... I mean, I don't have strong feelings on it other than um, I think it's a good callback to one of our earlier episodes, which is... Uh, about the futurists and their love of cars and cars as the uh, ultimate fulfillment of human maximalist progress. Yeah. And um, as the true source of magic, cars are magical. Right. So they got what they wanted, basically. If if the futurists could see the Fast and Furious movies, they would be creaming their genes. Yeah, although the... Um the funny, like, trying to shoehorn in um, family values and, like, faith uh-huh. just a little bit on each end. Yeah. Wouldn't, the futurists are way more They wouldn't go for that. Radical. Right. The dialogue itself, with the exception of Tyrese, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to say Ludacris because I don't think Ludacris is very good. Yeah. Tyrese is awesome. The dialogue is mostly just, it could, they could be saying anything. 
it doesn't matter what they're saying. <clears throat> yeah. It's just, it's just uh, sounds. As long as they say it with their eyelids half over their irises, right? You know? mm-hmm. That's how you can tell that they're like gritty, feeling emotion. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And Vin Diesel, I, the reason we're bringing him hit into this, if at all, because there's really no reason to, other than to say he's not part of the certified bald pimp club that we've been kind of been sketching out here, unfortunately, um, and. It really doesn't make sense that he's still a person we talk about. It, watching this movie, you're confronted with his lack of charisma, his lack of athleticism, <laughs> his lack of physical attractiveness. He, tr- he truly doesn't move. He's doing like he's getting very close to Seagal territory right. where he's. At least he's standing, but he's mostly just standing, yeah. almost entirely. Mm-hmm. And there's a crucial sh- scene where he's moving and moving his legs and running. And they have to CGI like the entire thing. Things it looks so awful. Yeah, it looks like when, like, um, like certain mega mega monsters where they move too fast, uh-huh. which would be impossible, like mm-hmm. f- in the laws of physics and inertia, that it just looks wrong. Like totally. You, you can do it on a computer, but it just looks wrong mm-hmm. instinctually. That's how it looks. It's like he couldn't jump five feet. Right. He couldn't leap. Yeah. And I mean, he doesn't look... He He's staying in shape-ish, you know? Yeah. Like, a lot more than Skull, obviously. Mm-hmm. But he needs to tone, as you said. Right. He needs to tone, but he doesn't have to. That's the thing. And And you may feel like we're being too harsh on Vin Diesel right now. What did he deserve do to deserve this and what does this have to do with our typical subject matter well i think if it weren't for the fast and furious we wouldn't be talking about vin diesel he has somehow found a way to stay in the cultural conversation strictly by virtue of this franchise right he is something of an outsider he shouldn't be a celebrity you know he could have he could have come and gone like so many kind of middle tier action you know, tough guys who come, there's a dozen of them a year who we forget about completely. The point being, he he is an outsider who has somehow managed to stay an insider, mm-hmm. even if he isn't respected. He still is a Hollywood, uh, you know, product that uh, of interest to some degree um, for no good reason that I can really find. And I've given him the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. I, I'm desperate for him to give some... Just give some sexy eyes. Give something, like do something, do something quirky and offbeat. De- deliver a line with any level of, of, of nuance, and he won't do it. I think, I think my vague memory of the earlier movies, he must have been bringing more to. Obviously, it's yeah. the ninth movie, and he's clearly like, one take, I'm done. Right, and that's in his contract, and to the point where you can't understand important lines because he says the wrong words. Uh huh. But um. Yeah, like our, I think it's in F one or two where like he like sexy pulls. Or, may, or is that gone in sixty seconds? No, I can't. Remember. I've never. Is he in that? He, I uh, now I can't remember. But, but I, I can't remember if it's him. Is the point? Uh huh. Like hikes the girl up on the hood of a car. Mm. It's a sexy scene, mm-hmm. but he's not bringing any of that energy anymore. If he ever did, right? But I think he got like he he had this aperture. At a certain point of time, a certain moment of culture where it was like, yeah, that's how the 
a hero would look. Uh-huh. Uh, this is the type of guy that, you know, that people will be excited about very briefly. Right. It's, and then it's, he's just, yeah, there's, hung on. I don't know if it's it's just because it was the era of our kind of coming of age or of coming into adolescence um, of the early aughts and why so many of those movies and, and media products are memorable. But it seems to me like that was a moment where people could gain some purchase and, and, and stay, you know, and have some staying power where since then that hasn't happened because things have been happening too quickly. Like I feel the same about ludicrous. I think ludicrous just kind of was at the right place at the right time. Yeah. Yeah. A few big hits in the early aughts got in a fast and furious movie and he's still in those movies. Yeah. Well, you know, that's fine. Uh, of all of the super franchises, I think it may be one of. I I don't know. I I, I think it's some ways it is the least in some ways offensive, least offensive. I mean, yeah. there is just like the whole. I'll I'll say, in view of the like good of humanity, I don't think there's any redeeming factor to the whole genre, in that it's like it's just there to create an ambient culture of. Cars is something you could love. Guns is something you could love. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it is still pretty amazing to like just see that like fetishizing two killing machines. Like uh-huh. that, yeah. It's like you can drive around a city block going 100 miles per hour and you won't like smash a kid. Mm-hmm. Or yeah. I- anyways, like it's pretty chilling and disgusting. Like, and it is there for the benefit of those industries like entirely. Right. Um, so yeah, it really makes me wonder about that, but still, even within, within its larger competition, it is still like very unoffensive. Like it's not over the top with the gun stuff. It doesn't play too hard except implicitly with like, are we on the woke side or are we on the, the based side? Right. I mean, it's more Wait, base. Is base different than base is not the opposite of woke. Isn't it? No. Sure it is. I don't think so. Yeah. No. Reactionary, whatever. It's sure. it's it definitely implicitly leans more that way because like it's someone, yeah it's whatever, um, but still like they there are many things teed up where they could be more offensive and they, they could don't. be more reactionary right yeah. and even like at the beginning where they're where they're in an um in an unnamed hostile Latin American country and just mm-hmm. being like. Shot just, at by their their military right. because they inv- invaded with guns, right? <laughs> and but they're wearing black masks, yeah. And so it's either you know supposed to be Venezuela or right Cuba or Bolivia or something, who yep. whatever you know coups being worked on. Mm-hmm. But they just Take don't say. So it's sort it's of like, called Mon- Monquito or something. It's fictionalized. Oh, do they it, say that? It's not a real place. It, it's a. I thought stand-in. they just said a hostel. It, it says like Monquito in the beginning. Okay. Just okay. to catch all Central America. Right. Jungle. So that's either like that they're just not getting enough input to say like, hey, we're we're working on Cuba right now. Can you please make it Cuba? Mm-hmm. Or. Because they're like a Marvel movie probably would just say, yeah, they're going to Venezuela. Right. Um, or it's just like the fact that, you know, in six months, the it's going to be a different coup that mm-hmm. that's being cooked up. So you might as well keep it vague. <laughs> yeah. This month is Cuba. Mm-hmm. 
Right. So anyway, somehow Vin Diesel manages to to stick around, to have have found his place. Whereas a lot of the uh, artists who we talk about here in Magic Camp, um, in their lifetimes, did not find such acclaim, such attention, and are only known to posterity. Um, so we have a couple figures like that um, to look at today who, who we would consider kind of part of that outsider class of artists who maybe did gain some acclaim or notoriety or fame late in their life or at some point, um, but were excluded from the establishment in a way that I think Vin Diesel would probably like you to believe he is. You know, there's some, there's a part of, of an appeal to a guy like that. That's like, this is the guy that Hollywood like doesn't want you to root for, mm-hmm. you know, cause he's, he's tough and he, and he doesn't, you know, he's not woke or emotional or any of that stuff, but he's really not the opposite either. He, he has no redeeming, alternative qualities either mm-hmm. you know in, in standing in opposition to whatever to the rock or to chris pratt or whoever yeah he's just completely he's just a vessel he's an empty pudgy vessel <laughs> at this point <laughs> i don't know if i'd call him pudgy he looks a little puffy he we'll looks puffy he's, pu- he's puffy. He does look puffy puffy, puffy. He's, he's always been puffy yeah his his muscles are big Mm-hmm. You're not saying his muscles aren't big. His muscle, yeah, of course, his muscles are big. You have good muscles. See, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> no, that's true. They're just too big. They don't. They don't. See, here right. I am ra- ranking, rating his body. But now, see, I was looking at men at the pool the other day, <laughs> and this is true. Okay, I was noticing one guy with big arms like that. Mm-hmm. Not like him, but it looks bad right. in a certain way. Of that's like, why you can't skip leg day, it bro. Looks, it yeah. No, it just looks like artificial mm-hmm. in a way that's like aesthetically drawing of like you look like Yeah, you look like you're, do you've been anything. doing you look curls, like you just bench press and curls for right. the all day, all day every day. So So yep. Um so n- sort of a new direction for us. Um we're both getting interested in weightlifting, so that's why we're kind of talking about <laughs> this stuff. No. No. Um yeah, so the theme is outsiders, bad boys. The bad boys. Now, um, truly, yeah, we're trying trying to just tie a few things together. I wanted to say a few more things about the eras that we've we've hit on pretty well, um, and hit on two two episodes ago about the uh, mo- the birth of the modern art movement, the Paris avant garde. Um, but look at two figures who were really like the predecessors, the Moses in the desert. One as sort of like a spiritual uh, mascot, and the other is more of like the formal uh, workhorse, I guess. So, um, so to put it in the words of one, we're talking about people um, who, yeah, are outsiders. So, in the words of Cezanne, all my compatriots are arseholes besides me, <laughs> which I think is very true of all three people we're going to talk about. They could. Um, very rightly claim that mantle of uh, being the only one uh, with a, uh, a bit of sanity in an insane society. Um, <clears throat> so the, uh, should we jump into this now? Let's jump in. Okay, so I'd like to talk about Henry Rousseau and Paul Cezanne. Cezanne. Uh, and we'll go over pretty quick. Uh, so first of all, okay, let's start with Rousseau. 
Let me jump into this right quick. Henry Rousseau was uh, not trained and uh, not successful as uh, a sort of classical artist, mm. which he sort of was setting out to be. Um, and uh, basically came from somewhat decent means, but really lived a pretty meager life in pursuit of being an artist. He, uh, he was known to his friends as the Donaire, I want to say. Uh, sticker on this one, French shit again, um, which Whoa. means tax collector, or basically he was a toll booth, toll booth. attendant. Uh-huh. Um, and so he was a toll booth attendant from like his 30s to his 40s. He had like a state, um, you know, state provided salary. Nice. And was began painting on the weekends, um, and was known as and was a Sunday painter for many many years. Which is a sort of a dig, right? Right. Um, yeah, and uh, you know, who doesn't want to paint on a Sunday though? Exactly. That sounds pretty nice to me. That's why he had his head on straight. And when he turned forty and was able to collect a pension from the state, an early pension, he retired at the age of forty-one. What? And first of all, pensions sounds nice, but um, I mean, so that enabled him to pursue a career in art or a second, a second life in art, basically. See, I don't like that. I think if you lose the will to work, you lose the will to live. Right. <clears throat> um, I, I totally agree. <laughs> um, no, but he, he lived po- pretty poor the mm-hmm. rest of his life, even yeah. though he had a pension to live sure. off. But he, you know. It was not sensible to do it, uh-huh. but uh, it's a big. I mean, that's the probably the best thing you could say about him was um, deciding to become a a full time Sunday painter, mm-hmm. right? Um, if I could, if I could retire today, I would do it. Oh Absolutely. yeah, for sure, I would do it. I, I wouldn't quite yet, but um, should we give a little for people who aren't familiar with his painting? Should we give a little description of of what he what his subject matter was? Or are you going to get into that? I mean, you may you may have yeah, seen his can, paintings if you've been to any now. important. I don't have the ti- the titles off the top of my head, right? Um, but just look them up. There's, I mean, he's known for these kind of jungle dreamscapes, exactly. right? Where it's they're almost like proto uh, computer graphic like animations, almost mm-hmm. in in being very um, you know cartoonish but three dimensional and kind of yeah. Um, they're very like deeply, wild, highly the wild colorful things are yes sort of like yeah somewhat childish looking lush but like um, yeah stylized but also like very detailed and s- smooth um, very smooth yeah so I mean there's a handful that that I truly love the dream uh, is a very famous one tropical and a or tiger in a tropical storm um Let's let me let me just pick a few. The Sleeping Gypsy is extremely striking. Um, the Snake Charmer, yeah. So all all these share like above anything. Well, not not above anything. I mean, his style is extremely distinctive, but the subject matter is is so striking because, like you said, they're they're very dreamlike um, and otherworldly, um, and they take place in jungles and exotic locations. And there's problematic elements to them, but um, 
yeah that that was his deal so let me just read this is a this is a very rare um obituary very short the painter henry rousseau died last week in paris a retired employee of the toll service who for many years exhibited regularly at the salon de the the, the independent salon and the salon de autome paintings whose naive composition won him a certain notoriety which is about the best thing ever written about him in a paper mm. at that time he had a certain notoriety with a certain group of eccentrics basically um so yeah basically he retires and at the age of 40 he just decides i'm an artist now i live in paris i'm an artist um and was completely straight-faced about that and was showing up <coughs> Showing up the, at the salons, submitting to the salons, um, showing up around like other established artists and expected to be treated as a peer and to be respected. And um, for that reason, and I'll get into a little bit more of it, his personality, which like the one word that comes up with him in his paintings and in his personality is naive. Like he had a sort of childlike obliviousness in his subject matter, in his um, sort of like clumsy approach to painting, um, and in his like approach to the art world. Mm -hmm. um, but he's like turns up around Paris, he's and he starts hosting soirees, having artists over, and building a group of like peers and compatriots uh, around him. It's good he's making friends. Yes, absolutely. Um, and that's a big part of his personality. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna pick some things to read here to um, that I think will explain it a lot better. Not far from where Rousseau lived at this period, the composer William Molnard had a studio in the Rue something. Gauguin, temporarily back from Tahiti, had his studio on the same street during the winter of 1894 to 1895. So I should point out that he's presaging the great modern artists Picasso, Brock, and that whole wave that we picture he's he get or he's an old man when they start to come on the scene mm -hmm. or oldish also is it worth lingering on the fact that Gauguin is also can also uh paint similar subject matter he had a period where he was where he was going like you said to Tahiti yeah but under seemingly very different pretenses and his jungle art mm -hmm. had a much more sexualized, um, problematic kind of uh, obsession slash, uh, you know, infantilization of native peoples yeah. that, that um, you know, it seems to me that Rousseau wouldn't have even been aware of. Yeah, in, in mean, the way that he paints. I mean, I can't give him that much credit necessarily, but yeah, you could make a similar critique. But like, it's the the sort of childlike obliviousness of Rousseau that mm -hmm. just seems a lot more innocent, right? And I and think he like, never like Gauguin was probably going down to get laid, right? Like, let's be honest. And Rousseau never traveled, right? Like, and it, it's therefore it has a much more imaginative, fantastical quality, versus sure. the like voyeurism of Gauguin. Right. Shitting on Gauguin once again. Yep. Um, <clears throat> Molnard and Gauguin entertained every Saturday. The Donaire, that which is customs collector, his, his nickname, frequently appeared 
with or without invitation, and moved unabashedly among such guests as Degas, uh, Strindberg, uh, Malarme, M- 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 Malarme. Yes, there you go. Sometimes he brought his fiddle and gave a short concert. Several s- stories have come down about Rousseau and Degas, the eccentric old royalist who sketched laundresses and ballet girls with, e- with equal passion. At one of these Saturday gatherings, Rousseau overheard Degas making acid, <laughs> making acid remarks about the difficulties, difficulties of exhibiting in Paris. The Donaire, <coughs> in a gesture that's, that staggered the already famous artist, uh, Degas, offered to use his, arti- quote, artistic connections to help Degas. <laughs> uh, he was not joking. Oh, okay. So basically he's saying... Here's him griping about how hard it is and saying, I can help you out. Like, I know some. Right. I, I'm, you know, I'm on the up and up in the art world. Um, just like embarrassing himself. Sure. He's saying, oh, yeah, I can help you out, dude. I exactly. got you. I, I know some people in the biz. Yeah. So uh, it, it, he's, a, he's a complex portrait to paint mm-hmm. because to a certain type group of people, he was that ridiculed person. Mm-hmm. Like most people were laughing at Rousseau. I mean, l- l- don't get it twisted. Like people were brutal back then. Like it was f- France in the late 1800s. Like oh, yeah. you couldn't imagine a more elitist, highbrow, like yeah. cliquish society. Yes. And trying to break into that. Like, right. Mean girls much? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I mean, that was the majority in you know, the parish social circles and in, uh, like relation to his paintings was ridicule. Um, because at the time what he was doing was so out of step with like the classical style and what was being shown in the salons. And it just looked stupid and bad. Um, when in fact, I mean, looking back on it now, you can see how singular and unique his vision was. Um, it just it just really did not fit. And I, I didn't mention, but like the first time he had paintings exhibited, two two paintings, they were both slashed with knives by some spectators. Whoa. And I mean, that's that's after being, you know, rejected. That's after being accepted. One of those spectators, Paul Gauguin. <laughs> just kidding. Uh, here's what I'll say. No, for, we don't he, have any Here's proof what I'll that. say for Gauguin is like he uh, he was a big fan of okay. of, you know, an early admirer of some of the most as important. he was a fan of Van Gogh as well. Van Gogh and right. Cezanne, and mm-hmm. yeah, he had he had like a dozen Cezans. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, someday we'll we'll do an episode on Gauguin. But um, so, anyways, like while he's mostly being ridiculed, although that really like the ridicule in the press really came after he had some like admirers. But anyways, he was he was still completely unsuccessful. But there's a group of people who recognized his complete earnestness and his innovation and, and creativity and genuinely loved the guy. And he threw a great party, you know, and he was there to, to be amongst other artists. Um, so his soirees were supp- supposed to be literary philosophical affairs, but there was always much drinking, laughter, and horseplay. Whenever the atmosphere became a trifle something, uh, a woman and her four daughters with flowers in their hair would make a ladylike exit. By midnight, things were often, I don't know what this word is, 
Um, uh, perhaps old Rousseau himself in the midst of the chaos, tootling a flute before <laughs> the full-length portrait of his dead wife and dancing from foot to foot, tears streaming from his eyes. <laughs> Amazing. Legend. That's awesome. And here's, um, this is a really great uh, passage from Max Weber. I, I don't know if you say it the same as the uh, psychologist Weber. Hmm. Max Weber, the painter, though. And also, I believe, critic um, who wrote about Rousseau. Um, says, uh, on my way home from this first visit, which I shall never forget as long as I live with Rousseau, I felt I had been favored by the gods to meet one of the most inspiring and precious personalities of all Paris. Here, I said to myself, is a man, an artist, a poet whose friendship and advice I must cultivate and cherish. By a sacred sense of privacy, he was shielded from the snobbery, pretense, and sophistication which was rife in the art circles of the time. Who said this? Max Weber. Oh, Rousseau. right, right, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then there's, I would like to talk about this. This is a kind of a long story, and I'm just going to pick from these passages, but there's a, like the uh, most important canonical uh, story about Rousseau is once he started to gain a circle of friends and true admirers um, mixed in with like people who were mocking him and to whom they thought he was just a joke. Um, Picasso and others, Picasso being much younger, right? And sort of before the dawn of, or the like the breaking point of cubism um, as they're just sort of like gathering steam and inspiration for what will be cubism and the birth of modern art, see Rousseau as like the presage of this and the spiritual leader in his Mm. earnestness, his childlikeness, his innocence, like Mm. his vision. Um, And so they throw this banquet of Rousseau, a party for Rousseau at Picasso's studio apartment uh, or studio slash apartment. Um, So let me just read until I tuck her out here. Rousseau's greatest moment, almost a transfiguration, it seems, to us now across the years, and it must have appeared to, appeared so in the dizziness of that evening, came in 1908 at the banquet of Rousseau. Its story so often recounted must here be told once more, for it emphasizes the combination of festivity and conviction that characterized the period. The gathering has been interpreted by some as a lampooning of Rousseau, mm. as a magnificent farce organized for everyone's enjoyment at Rousseau's expense. Such a misconstruction is a, a fact of man's correction. It was a celebration of unpredictable new resources in, in the arts, a spontaneous display of high spirits to greet ideas being unearthed every day by Picasso and Apollinaire and Max Jacob and Brock, by everyone present at the gathering, including Rousseau. Taking Rousseau as a unique pretext, the banquet celebrated a whole epoch. Picasso organized the banquet and decided to have it in his own studio, uh, the immediate occasion is supposed to have been Picasso's discovery of a portrait by Rousseau in uh, a secondhand shop. The painting was the handsome full like portrait de something, um, de mille, I, I don't know how to say it, which Picasso bought for a song as an old canvas and still owns. Um, he later described the incident and its effects on him. 
So uh, yeah. Rousseau is not an accident. He represents the perfection of a certain order of thought. The first of the Dunaire's works uh, that I had the opportunity of requiring hold of, hold of me with the took hold of me with the force of uh, obsession. I was going along the Rue de Miss Martyrs. A bric-a-brac dealer had piled up some canvases outside his shop. A portrait head protruded from the from the pile. The face of a woman wearing a stony look, with French penetration and decisiveness and clarity. The canvas was immense. I asked the price. Five francs, said the man. You can paint on the back. It was one of the most truthful of all French psychological portraits. Hmm. That's super interesting. Um, I had a thought pop into my mind here about it, it almost reminds me of, of like when you hear like a band's autobiography or like a biography of a band um, where they'll talk about some artist or band who you've never heard of, mm-hmm. you know, like it'll be like the Nirvana documentary. I, I don't care about Nirvana really, but, yeah. but they'll be like, Oh my God, like pavement. I mean, pavement and Nirvana were contemporaries, but, but a, an indie band will say like pave, pavements, the most important band mm-hmm. of, of the 1990s, you know, right. something like that. Um, and, and they're lost to the mainstream. They're, right. they're lost. And, and the, uh, whatever avant-garde movement that came after or, or, you know, revolutionary, movement is indebted to that to that one person or to that very like unknown niche act yep yeah exactly um so yeah very very much so like that's why i said like rousseau being more of like the spiritual predecessor in terms of the heart of uh modern art and the the paris avant-garde and i'll say how Cezanne is a bit different from that Um, But just to wrap up Rousseau, today, 50 years after the fact, the anecdotal riches of the Rousseau banquet, which is very funny, like the retelling of it is very, very funny. The uh, Comedy Central's roast of Henry Rousseau. Well, they put him up on like a pedestal Mm -hmm. and um, I bet half the people were clowning him. Half the people were were giving him props. Right. Um, uh, So here's yeah, here's a summary of that. The anecdotal riches of the Rousseau banquet have survived undiminished into legend. It was not a matter of public mockery that several of the most audacious young painters of the of modern times saw fit to honor a naive artist of the people. The joke is finally not on the Dunair. The joke is on the journalist who found Rousseau such an easy victim, on the chassé who scrupulously collected documents to, that finally proved the opposite of his thesis. Oh, that's another historian. Um, a title he chose in derision can today stand a, as an example of the event it was intended to ridicule, the ascension of Rousseau. Um, Hell yeah. Yeah. I really, I, s- those paint, like a handful of those paintings are, are incredibly powerful and so so arresting, so striking. And it is paired with like the, clunkiness of like the the style i mean it's like it's very technically clean and Mm -hmm. like precisely done right but it doesn't it doesn't have like the grace of yes of like classical style and i'd see it it doesn't have the subtlety of the impressionists right or of of the you know people of that 
impressionist would have been before. It doesn't have that yeah that intelligence. It's, yes. it's on the nose. Yeah, and and it feels, um, yeah, it's like a I don't know what an accurate comparison would be. Um, it it feels less exclusive in a way. Yeah, totally. Um, so yeah. I'm glad I'm glad to have that down so we can kind of reference cool. or so in the future. Yep. And I won't say too much about Cezanne other than like um to Picasso and the other leaders of the modern avant-garde. Suzanne Cezanne Cezanne was like god to them at a, at a certain point. Mm-hmm. Not as much in his person um like Rousseau was uh but in his like formal innovations and the uh perspective or uh yeah representational innovations that he had very laboriously over a number of decades like forged out sort of a new 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 way of depicting form Mm -hmm. um is very much like they saw as uh more more than van gogh more than Mm -hmm. gogan like he he stands tall above them in, in their own words. Um, let me just pull out this. Uh, you say something about Cezanne while I look for this. I quote. actually have a quote from him here because um, I was looking for. Uh, I wanted to bring back another old friend, see what Berger had to say about Cezanne, and he did doesn't really have much. He didn't write much about Cezanne, weirdly. Mm. Um, he says at the end of, his, uh, of a very short essay about him, Cezanne's conviction that what we perceive as the visible is not a given, but a construction put together by nature and ourselves. Um, that's, he says that's the secret behind Cezanne. That's yeah. that, this, I love, and I love that phrase, put together by nature and ourselves. Mm-hmm. That it's both a construction and a natural occurrence see berger knows what's up because yeah that it really captures the spirit of Cezanne, like because he was this he really was this bridge of like he has like a very conservative bent to him where he's like he's really drawing on the past and tradition Hmm. but just like insisting on transforming and bringing it into the future you know and he's that bridge between 18th and 19th century but so he's very serious about like standing at the foot of nature and observing and like getting it right. Like, and he talks less about impressions and more about like sensation. Uh So like trying to capture sensation, um, which is like, yeah, a marriage between perception and object. Right. Like it's not, cut loose from nature it's not cut loose from the object like he's going for a faithfulness so he's going for the sensation of perception is that would that be a way of uh, of trying to render what it's like to to see a thing yeah and and to feel yourself kind of shaping it in your own mind as you see it i'm asking i don't know Perhaps like I mean, because because I, I have I struggle with understanding. I'm not a painter. So some of these descriptions of craft and of like aesthetic intentions are a little lost on me, to be completely honest, because I don't fully understand 
what is that? Okay, how is what he was doing with a still life of, of a peach? How is it so, hey, peach, how is it so revolutionary in that way? I mean, I know when I see it, mm-hmm. it's beautiful and I love it and I, I'm arrested by it, but I don't quite have the language to articulate it. Uh, uh, why, why or what he's doing with form. Yeah. I honestly think it's very tough to nail down. Right. And the merit of it is like, I I didn't get it in either until it was like actually spending some time looking at it. And yeah. there's such a distinctive vision, you know? Like, right. I Yeah. I mean, that that is always amazing to me that like I have this Rolodex of, of people who I could give you the cliff notes on like where they were in it. it it's part of being a, just like a armchair art person, but where I could tell you what they, where they are and what they did sort of, but I haven't really spent that much time with them. And then, and then it'll happen where I actually do. And I'm like, Holy shit. Like this is real. And there's something here. I think what comes through to me, first of all, like, you know, think of him as a post impressionist. So he's doing a lot of what the impressionists are doing. Um, but he's taking it to a further, like a further state. This is a pretty interesting description of patches in painting, like what this person is kind of philosophically calling patches, which you could think of as just like sort of impressionist of like uh, just small locations of color and light, right? Versus the academic style going back to the Renaissance where like, something drawn or painted is very conceptual. Like it's a contained body. It it has like a form that's shown with contour lines. Um, like think of a Ma- Michelangelo sketch. Like that's like a three, it's like a 3d model, mm-hmm. you know, it's a, it's an extremely constructed right. sort of thing. Whereas the impressionist is like the impressionism is like all in the eye. It's, it's like what you see, sort of unloosed from conceptual construction. Right. Whereas like Renaissance classical is way more in the head, Mm -hmm. you know, like this is an arm turning in space and at a certain perspective and foreshortening. Um, So this is kind of an interesting read on like what that type of, which you could just call impressionism. It's not necessarily exclusive to Cezanne, but um, patches lived interesting lives like patches of color. Right. Think uh-huh. of like the patches of color on a Saison apple. Uh-huh. Right. Um, they had a history. The old masters as well as the moderns were preoccupied with patches, according to some, e- even if they were not called that. Modern interest dated back almost half a century. A popular artist manual of 1827 had described a method of landscape painting uh, in what was called hackshires akin to painting and drawing by stabbing the paint with a thick brush. Plainly, this ran counter to the well-lift surface finished of the salon painting. The hackshires turned into tatches. Their ideological underpinning assumed greater prominence. Inasmuch as they served to discipline sensations, they exercised a kind of policing function. The patch organized the painting, but they were also subversive. Like free radicals within the frame, patches were no... were no respecters of persons or conventions. They promoted a sort of pantheism, which gives the head no higher value than a pair of trousers, as one tr- as one critic put it. They subverted the established order, pictorial and social. They undermined the very foundation 
of the tra traditional composition. The more the artist attends impartially to the detail, the more anarchy gains, uh, wrote Baudelaire in The Painter of Modern Life. Whether he's myopic or presbyopic, hierarchy and so subordination disappear completely. There's a lot more I could read from that, but the idea is basically like, because it's detaching from like conceptual construction and it's just giving rein to the like sensation, right? Mm -hmm. What the eye sees, light and color, where like the the like bottom tone of a of an apple is just as important as like a figure in the frame. You know what I mean? Mm. There it's it's very equalized. Getting a little bit distracted here by painting, but um, I think in addition to that, like Cezanne takes that impressionist idea and like this patching idea of like just sensation and like pushes it to the truest form of mastery where like he gives so much more form than like Monet, where Monet is more of kind of just like truly a, you know, a blurry one level. Yeah. One yeah. depth blur. Mm -hmm. Whereas Cezanne's like, is combining that patchiness with like form that really turns and I don't know how to it describe does it move. Exactly. They move yeah. in, a, in an incredible way. Yeah. But above all, I think it's like when you see, I think when you see like his best later work, you get above all how painstakingly, um, like how patiently it was created and how, um, just how tortured he was in trying to take, take his perception and put it into a painting. Mm -hmm. Like, I think to me, Cezanne kind of makes me think of like, if Van Gogh ex basically exploded <laughs> or self-destructed or whatever, like over a course of like a few years, Cezanne is like a much more drawn out process. Like, it's like if, if Van Gogh lived in slow motion over like, and it took him 40 years to like find his perfection, that says on to me, it's like much more painstakingly felt. So that's where you get like, my God, like he really loved these apples. Yeah. Because I, and I can see that in this painting just how carefully it's constructed. He loved those apples. Um, and here's another quote mm -hmm. from Cezanne. The landscape, he said, thinks itself in me and I am its consciousness Color is the place where our brain and the universe meet. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I think, yeah, we talked two weeks ago about more of like the unfettered nature of modern art, which is really detached from the object. It's like pure subjective reality, uh -huh. right? Uh -huh. Versus like the completely objective right. style of classical painting. Right. And Cezanne is really like that bridge point sure. of like equal reverence for the subject and object. Cool. Um, so let me just say, oh, this is the last thing I'll say about Cezanne, then we'll kick it over to you. Um, I think this is a good summary of him and it comes through in his painting. Um, like if people said Rousseau was naive, people said Cezanne was inquiet. Inquietude is like the main uh, adjective for him. Later on in life, it was more tormented, mm. even though it's kind of like exaggerated. Whoever first pinned inquietude on him is difficult to establish with certainty, but by 1907, it was already received wisdom. 
Maurice Dennis spoke of him then as perpetual per, Jesus. Um, all right, he described him as in quiet. I'm just going to say Emile Bernard as tormented. As early as 1873, the Cezanne character in one of Zola's novels had been introduced as a twitching and habitual nervous inquietude. In 1895, Gustav Jeffrey proposed that he was dominated by that very characteristic. Soon Cezanne and inquietude were almost reflexively associated. Inquietude was his lot or the cross he bore, his fate, his plight, his tragedy, but it was also the mark of his moral stature. Chronic doubt made for epic struggle. That was the drama of the man, the hard-fought engagement on the battlefield of the interior. Mm. See, that's what that's what you get so much from his paintings, I think, is like this long struggle with himself and with the world. The legendary knight Bert Bayard uh, was... Jeez. <laughs> freaking French and Latin at the same time. Timid or tormented, he was human, all too human. Yet he overcame. He mastered himself and his epic. He made those paintings. He made those paintings. May, may we all make our own paintings. Not act, literal paint. I mean, may we all make the paintings we were made to make. Well, some people don't like painting, Paul. It's a metaphor. Paintings are a metaphor. That Don't you get it? That's what this whole podcast is about. Oh. All right. Um, okay. That's all I got to say about those guys. That's cool. I needed a little schooling in Cezanne because he's always kind of eluded me. Um, and I'm going to, I look forward to the next time I can, I can check out some of those apples. Well, he is your namesake. He is. Lots of Paul, lots of good Pauls back in the day. Paul, go again. Um, we talked about Paul of Thebes last week. Hmm. Um, okay. So we have another outsider here, uh, uh who may be, uh, you may be aware of, or you should be aware of. If you're listening to this show, you probably know know the chap, um, and that is, of course, the great Cornell West. Um, oh, oh. Um, so Cornell West. Ben actually brought this to my attention this morning or, or today because I'm very much not online at the moment at all. Um, that be, it being summer, I'm not really even reading the news. It's a little uh, irresponsible of me, I know. You need to be engaged. Yeah. If you're not paying attention, you're part of the problem. <laughs> well, it's the summer of Paul, so yeah, do what you want. Um, so, of course, this is about Cornell West kind of being, again, in, um, you know, kind of in the news kind because of. he's been he's been denied tenure at Harvard um, or has been in the process of being denied tenure and officially submitted his resignation. Um, his resignation... A couple days ago um, from Harvard uh, and we can we can read that letter if we want to I don't think we necessarily need to read the whole thing um, I have a few things that should sh- shed some light on this but just for some context um, Cornell West if you're not familiar is he's the real deal he's mm-hmm. the realist of the dealist that you could possibly find when it comes to the intersection of of uh, leftist politics, radical leftist politics, um, materialism, philosophical depth, uh, and spiritual fervor. You know, he's a he's a philosophy professor, is what he's actually employed as or was employed as in various divinity schools. 
right? So he's a philosopher by trade, a scholar, but he's written about all sorts of different things, black liberation, theology, art. Um, you know, he had political a aspirations at some point in his life and was an advisor on many different uh, political campaigns, including Ralph Nader, I believe Jesse Jackson, others, among others, um, and is as close as you can come to like a a prophet in our time, you know? Yeah. Uh, we could say the same of, of who he would, he would refer to as Brother Bernie Sanders. He's, of course, part of the, you know, the Bernie, Bernie movement, Bernie campaign. Um, and also one of the few remaining actually influential public intellectuals. Right. Is there any other? Is there, there's really, I mean, there are some we're not aware of. These are people who are writing books, pop, pop psychology, pop science books that are being, you know, going to the New York, write exclusively for New York Times book review um, and are just putting forth ideas that are digested within six months and then never n make no impact whatsoever. It's like yeah. little neuroscience things here and there. He's certainly, I would say the only, well, like, yeah, <laughs> the only public theologian, mm -hmm. the last one. I mean, w there are, of course, all of the other, the, the pu public, they're not theologians, they're pastors or mega no, they're, pastors. No, they're complete frauds. Right. Like, they're just... Yeah, the only, the only public Christian who is not a complete charlatan. Yeah, and, like, we've been struggling over the past couple weeks to, like, Go into some of the self-branded, like, smarter Christian publications to get their sort of, like, conflicted takes on art or whatever, like, progressive ideas where um, ostensibly, like, you have, like, Christians who are trying to be intellectuals or academics who are trying to be nuanced, like... And many of them trying to be progressive mm -hmm. in the only way they knew how, know how, and just like completely failing. Right. And out it's just utterly, it land, falls on deaf ears or it's completely toothless and, and has no, no real practical impetus to it. You know, it's like, okay, you, you don't, you don't read any of that in, and, it has, makes no impact whatsoever. Right. But it's like, if you're looking for, if, if you, if you're a Christian and you're also trying to cultivate like an intellectual faith or progressive faith, or like you're tr somehow trying to navigate those waters. Um, like Cornell West, that, that is, is his, somebody who you is, could go to. He is like the only guy out right. there. He, I used to, I used to assign texts and, and show videos of him at a very conservative university right. I taught at in Seattle. Cause it was like, this is the only thing I can give them. Right. And it's you like, know? if you're, if you are looking for this, this is it. Like, yeah, no, it's, it's there. And, and of course we did a little search to see if any of our uh, usual suspects had written about him. Christianity today, gospel coalition, like nothing, nothing. Nothing, it's, which nothing is amazing, whatsoever. right? And yet, you will scan the pages of those uh, those websites or magazines now, and you'll get a plethora of pandering um, articles about why the church needs to reckon with its racist history, all this different stuff. 
um, or, you know, alongside an article that says on Christianity Today how, you know, this is why you need to support Israel, et cetera, something along those lines, mm-hmm. or, while showing compassion to Palestinians. That's an important caveat. Um, so that's actually a good segue to what this is really about, because um, we wanted to do an episode about Cornell West for a while, just couldn't really figure out how to do it. Um, but, you know, so he's bounced around from a f- couple different Ivy Leagues, Princeton, he was at Union Theological Seminary, I believe he was at Yale for a little while, and then back to Harvard, recently came back to Harvard, um, and was given a contract that he says, when I arrived four years ago with a salary less than I than what I received 15 years earlier with no tenure status, after being a university professor at Harvard and Princeton, I hoped and prayed I could still end my career with some semblance of intellectual intensity and personal respect. How wrong I was. With a few glorious and glaring exceptions, the shadow of Jim Crow was cast in its new, glittering form expressed in the language of superficial diversity. Mm. All my courses were subsumed under Afro-American religious studies, including those on existentialism, American democracy, and the conduct of life. No possible summer salary alongside the lowest increase every possible year. That's a very important point that he makes there that he doesn't really belabor too far, but when we read a couple of these other things will be very important where he's essentially saying like he's a scholar and a activist of in philosophy in, in socialist politics, American democracy and everything he couldn't, he couldn't teach anything that wasn't branded as Mm -hmm. African American studies essentially. So what he's testifying to there without, like I said, belaboring the point is that, he, as a black professor, was told what he was supposed to teach as a black professor, and that was African-American studies, mm-hmm. right? Um, so that's an important point. And he goes on to kind of talk about, um, uh, you know, he was not given a sabbatical when he was promised a s- sabbatical. Uh, there, his mother died. Nobody, nobody said anything. Um, and he, of course, probably most importantly of all, has been openly critical of of Israel for for many years, mm-hmm. um, openly critical of a lot of things. He's one of a few public intellectuals who was deeply critical of President Barack Obama while while being supportive of him in his uh, you know candidacy, mm-hmm. um, and then you know completely held him accountable throughout his entire presidency and, and has some very very like heated, hot, intense criticisms of Obama. You know, like for what? <laughs> um, we don't need to get into all that, but uh, <laughs> so the time comes when he's being up for uh, either a contract or a or, or tenure, right? And keep in mind that like <laughs> this is insane to me. Like having having just kind of walked away from academia myself, I was never in the ballpark for, for even you know a one year contract was like my one my one bit of manna from heaven. So you would have needed nine more one-year contracts to get tenure. <laughs> tenure. That, it takes a long time to figure out that's not what that means. <laughs> um, but um, how uh, Cornell West, like that's, that's the most glaring and like stupid thing of all this is like, this is the most famous smart person <laughs> like in the country. Except for Jordan B. Peterson. Except for Professor Jordan B. Peterson. Well, he's a Canadian, so it doesn't count. They have they're much more generous to their their academics up there. Hmm. Um, yeah. But uh and he can't get tenure. 
He yeah. can't get he can't get tenure. Yeah. He can't get job security doing the thing that he's been doing for 40 years. Right? And that's that's an indictment that is so crazy. It is it is baffling. And so there's there's a couple of layers to that. What, what and one of them is that he he goes on to critique in this letter um you know what he views as Harvard and other universities becoming completely um, beholden to to financialization, to neo, the neoliberalization of the university in in many ways to this tenure process, mm-hmm. to the you know the glutting of of academic departments. Uber for the academy. Uber for the academy. Exactly. We Uber the academy started doing it first before Uber. They they got <laughs> so their true. ideas from the academy. Yeah. Um, well, they're not the first to, you know, have contract work, but, um, yeah. So yeah. Uber, Uber is the contract school of taxi cabs or sorry, the charter school of taxis. Yeah. hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. Um, so, um, so he says all this, that he was, um, all this is happening. He's getting no, no recognition, no, any of that. And he has these critiques to say, and I, I can go into those critiques in greater detail, but it's important to note that he 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 has a long list of of these critiques. Um, probably the the chief among them being that you know he's being denied he's being denied um, stability, you know, a position that he has rightfully earned. He says it's because he thinks and suspects it's because he's been so openly critical of the war you know, war in Israel or mm-hmm. the aggression of Israel against Palestine um, because of his bold and open criticism of Obama, of of the entire establishment. Yeah. Um, and uh, because the universities, the university has lost its way and all universities have, that they, that they are once, were once, um, you know, he became an academic because he believed it was they, they were bastions of what he he says uh, the quest for truth, beauty, and goodness are too often and then he goes on to say too often trumped for the pursuit of donor money, public image, and consumer reputation. I've been blessed to live a life immersed in the best of the magnificent West family. He goes on to talk about his family. My vocation pr- consists of a profound commitment to the life of the mind for the empowerment of my fo- fellow human beings and citizens, especially young people. Uh, unfortunately, this particular calling is now too often eclipsed by an obsession with brand and market promotion. Um, this preoccupation often produces superficial talk about diversity without genuine commitment to respecting the contributions of black scholars and others. Furthermore, colleges and universities are reluctant to wrestle with certain taboo issues in a serious way. Um, in my case, my controversial and unspoken, excuse me, outspoken views about the critiques of empire, capitalism, white supremacy, male supremacy, and, homo- and homophobia are tolerated, but any serious engagement around the issue, issues of Israel occupation are rendered highly suspect and reduced to anti-Jewish hatred or prejudice. So, you know, if you can't already tell, he's he's incredibly powerful as a speaker, writer, just like fire just straight fire all the time um and that's his case right so so that's part of my point and that's a tragedy in its own right and mm-hmm. it's all true and um it sucks right 
So, but I pulled up two articles here that I think can illustrate the obfuscation that takes place and like what this, what he's contending with mm-hmm. and like what a person like him is up against and why he is on the outside right now. And it has always been. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have two things. I have one from real clear education, which is, you know, I think an arm of real clear politics, ostensibly a reputable, uh, website and uh, magazine titled Cornell West is blaming his problems on Israel again. Jesus Christ. Yep. That is so disgusting. So, and he starts like this. He says, one defining characteristic of a conspiracy theory is that it requires no actual proof. Once the premise has been accepted, even the absence of evidence reinforces the underlying belief. See, the conspirators are so powerful that they leave no trace of their, their existence. It is easy enough to ridicule QAnon followers who parade in horned helmets and shaman garb, but what is there to say about a renowned academic who attributes professional setbacks to unseen Zionists who, though never identified, must surely be operating behind the scenes? That's like astounding. Astounding, right? So that that is like who wrote this? A guy named Stephen Lubay. Um, So uh, Stephen Colbert. Wow. No, I'm just kidding. Um, So uh, could be. No, he. I think Colbert probably had West on his show back in the day. But um, so, you know, that's that's a great bait and switch. There is like equate because because conspiracy theories are pr- prominent at the moment. QAnon being like it's like it's like a the <laughs> it's like QAnon being an op in real time. Mm-hmm. You know, like yeah. you put this absurd conspiracy out there so you can discredit all other critiques of power so any critique of power is inherently uh that's why that's exactly why it exists right yeah (laughs) Yeah. so he goes on to um you know the refusal was inconceivable he said unless something sinister was afoot he didn't say that he said he doesn't say it's something sinister is afoot right as in west and he goes on to describe this this writer that uh, West is saying that there is a cabal, right? That there's a cabal Oop. conspiring against him, Oop. which is another buzzword, right? Right? Which, again, like putting projecting this anti-Semitism onto him mm-hmm. and saying like that he's targeting a small. He's saying it's a small group. Cabal implies it's a small group of people, correct? Yeah, that's called a ruling class, right? A ruling class, and if if it's meant to imply that it's a small conspiring group of people there couldn't be something further from the reality of what pro-israel establishment is right it's not a cabal it's it's just everybody <laughs> like it's everybody in a position of power it's everybody Harvard. in the political and media class right yeah so he's not talking about a conspiracy he's just talking about the truth he's talking about the weather you know like <laughs> It's raining. Yeah. It, like, they don't want an anti, not even anti-Israel, but somebody who's critical of Israel, like, to be this publicly known. And to, to have the stamp of tenure from Harvard, right? So putting all of the uh, absurdities and, and criminalities of, of academia and, and, like, its hiring processes and whatnot aside. Um, so they offered him a tenure contract. Right, which these other articles, this this New York Times article is is uh, also quick to point out that they did give him 
a 10-year contract, right? They said, here's a 10-year contract and a pay raise, right? So, for, well, from his current salary, which apparently is less than what he was making 35 years ago. Mm-hmm. So, good gig, right? 10-year contract? That'll see him through to retirement. But, I mean, a contract is psychological. Contingency precarity is psychological, mm-hmm. right? That when you give a contract and not a, you know, the fact that salaries aren't just a part of, it's it's not just salary, continued employment is completely absurd. It's, tenure needs to be abolished. But it's it's a warning. A contract is a warning that you get this if you, if you do the right things, mm-hmm. if you if you stay within certain bounds, right? And that goes for the lowest on the totem pole adjunct faculty member and the highest at the very top, you know, that the Cornell West. From Paul Anderson to Jordan B. Peterson. <laughs> <laughs> so what I'm saying is basically I, I'm I've been victimized in the same way for my criti- criticism of Israel. <laughs> By the cabal. Just kidding. Um, so, and I have another point, and I don't want don't to dig too deep into this, but I do think it's worth, worth talking about. How are we doing on time? Uh, we're at 110. Let me go close the chicken coop door okay. so no predators kill my chickens. Okay, we'll pause. Be right back. And we're back. Okay, so we're going to turn now to this other article uh, in the New York Times, and I want to preface this again with Wes's own words before we get into this. So in his Chronicle of Higher Ed interview, he says, he says, first, black scholars and too many others are too often disrespected, devalued, or dismissed. Second, and that's when he goes on to list all the things that I just named, right? I already read that quote about all the different things that he's seen happen at the universities. So he says, note Spiritual there, rot. Spiritual rot, exactly. So first, black scholars and too many others are too often disrespected, devalued, or dismissed. He then goes on to say at some point, um, therefore, so many scholars, including black ones, are simply scared and afraid to raise their voices about these delicate and difficult issues. So notice there that he, he's very specific in his language. He says disrespected, devalued, or dismissed. And that that has to do with who they are as people, what they're saying, and their contributions and, and how they are valued at the university. Mm-hmm. Also note that he talks about how they are commodified and uh, in the name of equality and equity and diversification, mm-hmm. right? So the New York Times article is interesting. It gives us a little bit of context um, and tells us who he was, you know, pro- prolific professor um, at Harvard until he had some disputes with the former, uh, a new Harvard president. Um, probably a good guy. Yeah, probably a good guy. In fact, I think the article says that that particular uh, Harvard president was hired to address the problem of grade inflation, which is like... <laughs> You couldn't find a less important problem. <laughs> you know, what What that means is, like, he's not – he's there to, to raise money. He's there to raise money to advance the interests of – like, yeah. that's yeah, that's the problem at Harvard is great inflation. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it is. Um, okay, so uh, <laughs> so he, he says, you know, they talk about how he, he walks. He says, you know, I'm not – he says, I'm not going through the back door 
I've been doing this too long. I'm about ready to pack my bags. Then it says, Dr. West's complaint adds new fuel to a debate over race and tenure that is being waged at Harvard and other universities where black and Latino professors say they're underrepresented in the ranks of tenured professors. Okay. So here's where we have to do a little both and sort of thinking, right? Mm -hmm. um, that That is absolutely true. Um, and it is a very real issue that there is lack of representation by people of color in, in faculty departments all across the country. Um, and that is part of what West's critique is, right? So West himself says that the reason he's leaving Harvard or one of the reasons is because he's being, he's being censored, right? He's being censored and punished for what he is saying, yeah. right? And this is something you see a lot of the time when you, they bring up statistics here about percentage of faculty of, of black faculty at universities when they, when it's a low number, 6% of, of um, professors in America are black, 6% Hispanic, 12% Asian, 75% white, right? So that's a statistic that will be brought up and, and people will say, oh, why do you think that is? Is it because there are administrators who are Dis actively discriminating against people of color? Um, or is it because for other reasons that people of color don't want to go into these fields, right? They're not attractive. I think it's the latter more often than not because for a variety of reasons, one being that it's, it's a, it is a completely precarious and exploitative profession, <laughs> right? You, you're not going to get more faculty of color when this is what they're going to experience, mm -hmm. that they will be told what to say, right? And that um, they will essentially be, um, they will be just as vulnerable, more vulnerable in these positions than they, they are in other ones. Yeah. Right? That they'll be as uh, subject to exploitation as they are in any other aspect of American life, if not more so. You're better off just being becoming an Instagram star and then a rapper and then being an F9. <laughs> What's an F9? Cardi B. Oh, fast she's nine. fast nine. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's one way to do it. That's <laughs> that's much more appealing. I mean, that's what I would do. And okay, if so I that, to be rich. that if I wanted to be rich, I would just, you know, you know, write a best-selling novel and like, you know, start a start a Fortune 500 company. Yeah. Yeah. Um Okay, so I'm a, little, I'm a little in the weeds here. But my point, first point that I am trying to emphasize here is that what Cornell, Cornell West is saying, the reason he's leaving Harvard, is not being expressed in this New York Times Correct. article. Right. It's not being explained. It's being relegated into another <laughs> Which, category. by the way, his resignation letter is much shorter than this stupid article. <laughs> exactly. I just read right. His own words. I know. Just re just read him. They they don't Instead quote him at them all. Obscuring his point. Exactly. They're obscuring his point. Is right. is exactly what they're doing. So, and this is where my blood really kind of started to boil here. So, on a personal level, the graduate students supporting Dr. West's pursuit of tenure said in their petition that he is an electrifying presence. Yeah. No shit. No shit. Why is that? Well, they don't ask the students, but they do speculate 
on why that is. In his philosophy classes at the Law and Divinity Schools, the letter said, Dr. West taught the students to appreciate the unexpected connections between Nietzsche and Nina Simone, between Chekhov and Coltrane. Oh my gosh. That is intoxicating. That is the most New York Times sentence ever written. (laughs) Like, uh, that's why. That's why Cornell West was fired, is because he draws connections between Nietzsche and soul music. Because he sits backwards in his chair. <laughs> exactly. And, yeah. Because he wears a cool cravat yeah. and has an afro. Right? Yeah. And not because he criticizes Israel, criticizes Barack Obama, criticizes capital and American imperialism. Thank you. And, yep. and teaches teaches children to do the same. Not children, <laughs> but young people to do the same. Right. Right? It, it's because he's too, he's too cool. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. So that's that's like what this is reduced to, is is this, I mean, largely identitarian synthesis, uh, interpretation of the situation is that it's his it's his personality and not his politics or his actions, right? And th- that that those are the things that are a threat to the university, as opposed to the ones that actually criticize the university. Yeah. Right. So it's infuriating to say the least. Um, to read that and then to see buried way, way, way down at the bottom. Let's see. Second to last paragraph. He says he said he is mystified as to why he would not be given a tenure review, but offered some possibilities, a reluctance to grant a coveted position to someone of advancing age. Okay. Whose best work might be assumed to be behind him and concerns that his support for Palestinian cause might offend the prevailing orthodoxy and donors. That is you could analyze the sentence, but the way that's tacked on as like a preposition, I don't know what it yeah. is, as like a literally incidental to the sentence. It's incidental. It's, yeah, it's completely, um, they're asking this guy, that that's not even Cornell West saying why he might have been fired. Mm-hmm. That's another person, a guy who's in the administration at Harvard saying why he may have been denied tenure. So they're not asking him. They're not reading the letter. Right. They're speculating on these reasons why he might not have gotten tenure and leave one sentence yeah. to say it could be because of his criticism of of aggression against Palestine. Right. And to emphasize again, his resig- resignation lever- letter fits in an Instagram post. Right. <laughs> like it's very short and to the point. You know, because he's an excellent writer, and that's top top three of the big reasons right. why. Yeah, is because of his outspoken stance against Israel. Right. So we still have. There are still good people in the world. Is maybe a good note to end on with Cornell West. People who still stick to their guns. It's. I'll just. I'll just riff here a little bit. It's depressing the shit out of me because um, it, it would be really interesting to do an analysis of like his public persona and career. But like since Obama, it feels to me like he's just been pushed way, way down the stack. He was mm-hmm. he was something that somebody that, you know, a certain sector of the establishment thought hey, this could be cool. You know, right. this guy could work for us. And after it turned out, no, he's 
he has integrity and he's going to be critical of Obama if he turns out to do an about face on everything he campaigned on. Right. And is going to not shut up in his criticism of cap criticism of capitalism and imperialism mm-hmm. and militarism. Um, that it's time to put him away. And like, it's just radio silence on him. Like, He's such a a phenomenal character Mm -hmm. and like someone who doesn't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. Like there's such a, is dearth, is dearth a lot or is dearth Dearth is is not a lot. There's such a dearth (laughs) of public smart guys. Yeah. There's such a dearth straight up of like, (laughs) yeah, like public intellectuals. Yeah. To the point that. You have an entire generation for, like, there's this 20, 30-year gap that when Jordan Peterson steps up and says, what I'm not going to call, yeah. I'm not going to call you by your pronoun. I'm not going to call you by your pronouns. <laughs> yeah. Aphrodite is that, Right. Yeah. That people think he's He's smart. awesome. Yeah. Like, there is such a gaping yaw of, like, just smart, smart academics with integrity and who can and, and like articulate their message style. to ad, articulate their message to a broad audience right can Just, speak in a in a, a human and, and populist way which he can he's in he's an incredibly powerful speaker like he could like i showed his a video of him on cnn which it seems he's not above doing those things like that's right. the thing is like he's willing to go and talk to stupid people yeah. and go to stupid forums and be nice to Anderson Cooper like and and you know rub shoulders with a bunch of dumb people on Fox News right which, which, he has you know, the the patience he has the patience right. it's re- and it's real and that is extremely powerful like he could rile up a bunch of kids yes like, that's that's what th- i'm saying i showed his like i said i showed this video of him to my students and had them analyze his rhetoric and they're like, that guy's incredible. Who is that? Right. That's, that's exactly what I'm saying where it's like, let's just take young evangelicals. Many of, many of whom like are actually searching for a way to like, especially in the post Bush era, there was this moment of like the emergent church of like, okay, we're going to have to reorient we're going to do a non-conservative type of evangelicalism. Yeah, we're not going to touch the theology, but we're going to try and do something different, right? Looking for, like, <laughs> any charismatic person to come in and give direction to that, and there's nothing on the yeah, horizon. right. Other than these completely mediocre boobs, <laughs> like, who get up there and tell... A joke like that would get you like just shit thrown at your head if you were a comedian. (laughs) Right. Like unacceptably dull and stupid, (laughs) except like that's where the bar is for pastors. Right. Of of, like just complete mediocrity. And it's like this this person is right here. Right. Ugh. (laughs) Freaking out about this. Yeah. No, I've I've felt that way for a long time about him. He yeah. has all of the 
language. Like he yeah. has the full Christian syntax at, at the ready. Yeah. And can pair it with a radical progressive, like message with integrity, but he's just been pushed down the stack. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. But the thing that really depresses me is that even now, like he feels like, um, I mean, it's because of that, but like, he feels like a relic of the past already of like, right. He's getting shafted right now. And that, that sucks. But the worst part about it is like, I can't believe he, you're even still here. Cause it, it just feels like we're so far beyond you. Yeah. <laughs> like, right. It's, it's, it's a miracle that he's still a lot like exactly. That's, he's still going, exactly. he's still talking that he hasn't just given up. Exactly. You know, he'll bounce back. He's, he's going to do something like he'll, he'll, he'll be okay. Yeah. But it is, it is a absolute travesty that he isn't a more prominent voice, you know, and, and that he is, uh, yeah, just disrespected in this way. Um, I mean, it goes to show that like any, any other prominent spiritual leader from American history is not there. The prophet is rejected in their hometown, my man. Well, I'm saying something different, actually. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the ones that actually were prominent, say Billy Graham, uh-huh. are only there and only members of the American Christian canon because they were propped up by the state and the establishment sure. for some other reason. Right. Like, there, there was a whole industry behind creating those people right whereas Cornel westers didn't have any of that sort of backwind yeah it, it's it does make me very dubious of a lot of these voices that are being propped up more than others yeah in you know this is not my place to speculate on on the you know, the value or the efficacy of certain writers and thinkers in, in the conversation of race and, and, um, inequality. And I, I know I'm very much out of my depth, but, you know, I, I'm a fan of ta Coates, but West, West critiques of him are legitimate. Yeah. And there is a reason why, why one of them is, is, a is on like celebrity the, the cover of the Atlantic. And yeah, it's right. like, yeah. This American Life and all that stuff. Um, again, respect to Coates. I like him. But writing Black Panther comics, you know, he, he does that now. Um, and, and Cornell West is just kind of, he's just kind of viewed as this relic and, and a sort of like kook. He never should have been in the second Matrix. See, that, I mean, that's all the evidence you need that he's the, he's the best (laughs) that I love uh, matrix. Number one, obviously great. Second one, not very good, but the Wachowski sisters Mm -hmm. made it a point to put Cornell West in the matrix. We should talk about them because in that whole, the trilogy, Mm -hmm. because it is pretty brilliant. Yeah, of course. And they said that he was, like formative and instrumental in developing their like political framework of the movie yeah, and of the universe. And that's why they put him in the movie. Right. 
and I like I've heard their own commentary on it like is it's a meta meta criticism of especially Americans uh, obsession with escaping reality mm. uh, like a religious escape from reality sure a- anyways um, man I just want to talk about corn I just want him to be on our podcast could do you think do we it? could get corn west <laughs> I'll send him an email Get John Early first, then Cornell West. Man, that would be the best podcast ever. Um, yeah. No, I mean, and there's no doubt that... I mean, anyone who's, like, famous and is getting a lot of media attention is, like... There's a plot there. <laughs> like, There's a what? There's a plot there. There's yeah. a reason to be backing. Like, because any intellectual or artist, like shouldn't get attention like in mm-hmm. the normal course of media drama, you know? Yeah. So like there's, there's going to be a reason now it makes me really think about like, uh, you know, spiritual leaders and who, who like, yeah, gains prominence and <laughs> where, what meetings they had, you know, just along the way that helped help them, uh, break through the next level and that the next thing i want to talk about is the pussification of the western male (laughs) i will say (laughs) we didn't read from any cornell west in this episode right because he's a real academic we like yeah it's he's not a pop writer no i mean we read some of his letter but right and his and the interview is like He's not Jordan Peterson. Like he's right. not an easy read. Most of his his work is scholarship. Exactly. Like he I mean he has the creden- the bona fides of a, of a scholar. Like he's not He's a scholar who does activism. Right. Like yeah. Yeah, you couldn't make a claim that like oh you're only popular and a public intellectual you're not enough of a scholar to to get tenure. You could not make that No way. That criticism. Um Okay, so well, I I feel like it's a tough place to end here because it is such a bummer that our good, you know, this good, one of our new patron saints of the show, I would say. Here's what I'll say. I mean, it, it, it sounds trite, but we are trying to put some historical perspective on the fact that, um, Rousseau and Cezanne were almost dead before they got any respect at all right and faced a lifetime of rejection i'm not comparing the struggles of cornell west to cezanne mm-hmm. because cezanne was rich and right had a lifetime of money to right there's 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 that obvious there's a layer of relativity that we have to factor factor into all of this when we talk about the french avant-garde and like insiders and outsiders yeah, yeah. because they were all upper crust in some way yes you know yes yeah. totally yeah um but yeah i mean it is like important just to take a slightly longer view of like thinking within 10 or 20 years like it is extremely dire um and feels like nothing good could come of our culture but that may really change over the course of a century like mm-hmm. right and things can really turn and no one no one gives a shit about any of the motherfuckers who were in the salon in 1900 and were the most 
popular about town mm-hmm. respected artists of of the time of the classical right you know, or academy tradition right and it is it's so that's not even a moralizing way to say of like Cezanne and Rousseau, you know, just be as strong as they were. It's more just that history moves fast, I guess. Right. You know, and if anything, it's like it does seem like we're at a moment where the like the masters of culture and um, discourse, you know, the, the people of the political and media classes like we're at this moment where it's like you're banging your head against the wall of like, how could you be this out of touch? Mm -hmm. Like they feel so disconnected and it, that may indicate that we are at this tipping point of like, your opinion is so irrelevant at this point that like the world is moving on without you. Like no one cares what the New York times writes. Right. (laughs) No one cares. Uh, I would, I don't know if I would go that far. Care, care might not be the right word. Care, you might be right. Reads is influenced by, respects. I is, think it's. I mean, I I could show you my my follows. I know. Like, I know. People accept an op-ed as as fact if it's written in the New York Times. But it may be a hell of a lot smaller. Oh yeah. Then we realize, and even like right. we sit on the edge of that group of people mm-hmm. and, and it is a pretty small group how, of people. It is a pretty it is. small group of people. Yeah. That's true. Um, no, you're absolutely right. I just, I just mean that if there's any lesson from just like taking abstractly, like that period of art history, it's like in a course of 20 years, the rug could be completely taken out of, from under the official owners of discourse sure. and, and the tastemakers to the point that now they're, now they're just yeah. dust, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would vote for Cornell West for president. Hell yes. Obviously. Why didn't he ever run? Hmm. I don't know. We'll have to ask him when he comes on. Because <laughs> he was worried that his love of Coltrane would be too too revolution too hard for the the white public <laughs> to 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 palate. Yeah. Yeah. Nope. Again, to reiterate, it's it's the point is that Cornell West is far more revolutionary and radical than his aesthetic tastes and what he taught in and his style. Mm-hmm. That he was that he is a moral, spiritual, political, politically radical countercultural voice. Yeah. And that that is that is why he is excluded mm-hmm. from from the the canon that is higher acad- higher education mm-hmm. of tenure and of Harvard and, and the Ivy League. Yeah. Right? Um, just want to make that clear. So my sarcasm, my layers of sarcasm aren't misinterpreted by our five listeners. We got you. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we, we got into it here. Um, uh, it's, uh, you know, you got to remember that at the end of the day, it's about family. It's about family. It's about what car you drive. And if you can fix it, if you can't, 
They don't. You're a fucking pussy, and I don't respect you. They actually don't fix. They cars. don't really fix. Well, yeah. They don't work on cars really. I mean, they vaguely like they'll wipe off their hands, <laughs> like to start a. They'll lean up from the hood. Crack a It'll beer. It'll show them leaning yeah. up from the hood. No, and smile. But the, I mean, I could actually understand, like, if you're into fixing and working on cars, like, cool, that's cool. That's mm-hmm. a skill. Of course. I want to be clear, though. Driving is not a skill. <laughs> it's not a superpower. Yeah. Which is the premise of the movies and the premise of the worldview of about 10 million Americans. Right. Is that my... That- my, my car is an extension my of my superpower is driving. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> my superpower is when I roll up to the parking spot, I back it in. I back it in. Yep. I, I, I'm in the left lane and I pass. I understand what the left lane is for, which is passing regardless of the speed limit. <laughs> that is, Oh my God. I hate that. Or I'll do the right lane. I don't care. Yeah. Um, I will say Fast 9 is worth seeing for Tyrese and Ludacris in space. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good scene. That, that was a good, good good sequence, good scene. That's probably the mm-hmm. only good scene. Yeah. Well, this has been Magic Camp. Uh, we are brothers, in case you forgot. But we're also friends. So, you know, what's it to you? It doesn't matter. Faith, family, friends. Fords. Fords. Fast, Furious, Fresca, uh, <laughs> Fresca, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, if you've got a little bit of extra time after school at any point, stop on by. This is Magic Camp. We talk about art and power and all that jazz. Um, I'm Paul. Hey. Oh, I'm Ben. <laughs> yep. Um. Oh shoot! I forgot to say, our Excellent music provided by the one and only Trevor Welch. Thanks again, Trevor, um, for sharing your music with us. You can check out his his stuff at trevor.money or at Trevor Welch on Twitter um, or Kanaya Base on Spotify. That's one of his monikers. That's in the um, uh, description. So check that out. Trevor, your family. Oh, Twelve, you're part of the Magic Camp family. I want you to say grace. <laughs> you ready to say grace? <laughs> All right, see you later, y'all. Bye.